Uh, Restoration, good morning. How you guys doing? Good? Good. Uh, has anybody ever done something really dumb? Like you ever have one of those decisions that you look back on in your life and you think to yourself, what in the world was I thinking? Uh, that happened to me about 10 years ago when I graduated high school, uh, 2010. I was living here in Colorado and me and my friends loved watching this TV show called Man vs. Wild. You guys remember that? Bear Grylls, like this guy Bear Grylls would go out to the middle of nowhere and he would just live off the earth and he always had a camera crew with him and I never understood that, how they had food, but he didn't. And he was just like so extreme and so intense and I wanted to be just like Bear Grylls. And so uh, me and my, my group of buddies, we thought it would be a good idea to go on our own Bear Grylls winter adventure. And uh, the idea was, is let's go on a winter camping trip. Now, keep in mind, I don't like camping. I, the reason why I don't go camping is because I have a house with electricity and heat and air conditioning. That's why I don't go camping. Uh, but we thought, hey, let's go on a winter camping trip. And uh, not only are we going to go on a winter camping trip, but we're going to go on a 16-mile backpacking trip in January in the Rocky Mountains, which is a really bad idea. And so uh, we go to Gart Brothers, if you guys remember that place, and we you know, buy some backpacks and some sleeping bags and a few water bottles, and we're so underprepared. And, uh, me, and me and the fellows, we get in the car and we drive up to the mountains, and we're at Kenosha Pass. Some of you may know Kenosha Pass. 11,000 feet of altitude. We're going to hike a 16-mile loop around the Colorado Trail, and uh, we get there, and the first problem that we ran into is we get out of the truck and there's four feet of snow. And uh, if you know anything about walking through four feet of snow, you need these things called snowshoes. And uh, I had these things called Nikes, uh, which was problematic. And so we get out and we're supposed to make it eight miles the first day. And we start just like trudging through the snow and it's exhausting. And all I brought was one Nalgene water bottle. And so in the first 30 minutes, I'm sweating and I've drank all the water that I have. So I do what any smart person would do. And I fill up my water bottle in the creek and I drink it, right? Which you know, isn't what you're supposed to do when you go backpacking. And so we only make it two miles in the first day and it's getting dark out and it's the time when we're supposed to set up the tent and go to bed. The problem is, is that we're on the side of a mountain and it's a 30 degree grade. And so we set up the tent on the side and like everything in the tent is just rolling to the bottom because it's so steep. And uh, we eat a quick dinner, we get in bed, it's like eight or nine o'clock. And all of a sudden, right as everybody falls asleep, the situation goes from a fun trip with friends to really scary. Uh, I start to feel this stirring in my stomach. And I go outside of the tent and I throw up. And if you know, after you throw up, you feel a lot better, right? And so I get back in the tent and like 10, 15 minutes later, it just starts coming up again. And very quickly I realize I have the stomach flu. On top of Kenosha Pass, 11,000 feet, zero degrees. And uh, this is a Bear Grylls trip, so I can't tell the guys that I'm with. I can't wake them up, right? Because I'm trying to be tough. And so I just start throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. And if you know, if you've ever had the stomach flu, it is horrible. Like you just want to die. You don't want to be there anymore. Uh, but the worst part about it was actually not the stomach flu or the cold. The worst part about it was how thirsty I was. Like you get so dehydrated. And I just remember... This one point, I go back into the tent to get one of my water bottles, and the water is all frozen because it's so cold, and I couldn't drink any water. And I'm like on the ground outside, like licking snow, just like trying to get a drop of water. And, and this was like the lowest point of the entire trip. There's this moment where, uh, you know, I got the stomach flu, and, and we're a family here, so I'm going to share some details. I'm going to trust you guys with this. I'm sitting on a log and doing, you know, my business, and the log breaks. And I like, I'm laying on the ground like this and I look up at God and I say, God, just take me like, <laughs> this is it. I'm done. I don't want to be here anymore. And, uh, 
you know, somehow my, my friends come outside and they start a fire and, and I think that fire probably kept me alive uh, because it was so cold out. I was starting to get hypothermia. When you have the stomach flu, you have these terrible fevers. And so I start taking off all my clothes. I'm like in a t-shirt in zero degree weather. Like this is just an awful situation. But all I could think about was water. I'm like, God, please give me some water. And so we make it through the night and I wake up the next morning and seeing that sun rising over those mountains was the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen. And two of my friends with my arms over their shoulders, they carried me out two miles back to the truck over six hours. And I am so thirsty at this point that I'm starting to become delirious. Like all I wanted was water. And so we get into the truck and we drive down into this little town outside of Conifer. And I just remember on a dead sprint, I go into that gas station and I go and I sit on the floor of the gas station at the refrigerated beverage section. And I drink like three gallons of water. And I look over and the the nice lady at the cashier, she's looking over at me and she's like on the phone, probably calling the police because of the the bum who just came inside and is drinking her water. Uh, So I made it, I made it out. I survived. It was okay. Uh, I was very sick afterwards. The reason why I share this whole story uh, and how I'm going to try to connect that story to the Bible uh, this morning is when we really want something, like when we really desire something, we will go to extraordinary lengths to get it. We will go to extraordinary lengths to get it. And I want to take us today to a a scripture um, in Acts chapter 12 when there was a group of people who desperately wanted something. And I want us to zero in on what they were willing to do to get it and see if we can't model ourselves after them and and do the same. So Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 1, it was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. So this is the meanwhile back in Jerusalem moment. If you guys have been here, we've been preaching the book of Acts. Jason preached on Acts 11 last week. And uh, up until this point, the church has been experiencing uh, a streak of success. Like there has just been one miraculous conversion after another. You had Saul of Tarsus, you had the uh, centurion, you had the eunuch, you had the Gentiles and the Jews in Antioch. And the church is spreading and the gospel is spreading through this disciple making movement that we see in Acts, but what happens in Acts chapter 12 is this guy Herod comes on the scene. And Ron's going to talk more about Herod next week, but just know he is a bad, bad dude. And not in like the cool way, like he is a bad guy. And uh, in Acts chapter 12, I think we start to see how Satan starts to rear his head against the church. And, and what's the first thing that bad guys do? Well, verse 2 he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And we got to stop right there because this is an earth shaking event. James, if you recall, was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of the 12 guys that followed Jesus. And James is the first of those 12 followers to be martyred, to be killed for his faith. Now he was not the first person in the church to be killed. That was Stephen in Acts chapter seven, but he is the first of the disciples. And James is one of the big three, the big three, the three men who were closest to Jesus. You know, you had LeBron, D. Wade, and Chris Bosh, the big three, right? So in the Bible, you have Peter, James, and John. James is the brother of John. And in this one sentence here in the Bible, that's it. That's it for James. He's gone. Uh, Put to death with the sword is Bible talk for he had his head cut off. So it wasn't a pleasant way to go. And, uh, you know, there's probably some of you in here who wonder if you're like me, wouldn't God have some type of special protection for his followers? Like the big three, the ones that were were with Jesus. But it's important to remember that Jesus guaranteed no special protection for his followers. In fact, he guaranteed 
that they would suffer. He said that in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And there's some of you who walk in here today and and that's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing suffering. For some of you, when you made the decision to follow Jesus, life actually became more difficult and you started to experience more problems in your life. And if we go back to these apostles, these, this early church, it just gets worse for these poor guys. So verse three, when he, being Herod, so when King Herod saw that the killing of James was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So he took out the lieutenant, now he's gonna go after the general. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put Peter in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. So four times four is 16. 16 soldiers, and Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Herod seizes Peter, and make no mistake about it, he seizes him, but his intention is to execute him. His intention is the same fate is James, but it's the Passover. It's the big holiday. It's like Christmas. You don't do a public execution over Christmas when everybody's with their family. You wait until after Christmas, after the holiday, when you can have the full attention of the Jewish people. So instead, Herod delivers Peter to these four squads of four soldiers. And you just got to imagine this scene for a moment. Like four guys, four squads of four soldiers, 16 people guarding one person. And it seems a little excessive, right? But, you know, Herod is thinking through the lens of, oh, yeah, remember what happened back in Acts chapter 5 when all the apostles were in prison and the prison breaks apart? And then all of a sudden, they're in the town square preaching the gospel. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember. God is with these guys. So I'm going to make sure that we put extra protection. And uh, all of a sudden, in, in this story, the scene shifts. If this was a movie, I imagine, like, the scene shifts and it cuts to a new scene. And we're at the house of John Mark, who's one of the, uh, the, the members of the early church. And there's this simple church gathered, uh, all these believers, and they're praying. Uh, this is what it says in verse uh, 3. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And this is the verse that I really want to zero in on this morning. Um, this is a group of men and women and kids, people not so different from, from many of you, and they're in this house, and the Bible says they are earnestly praying to God. Uh, that word earnest, it comes from the Greek word ektenos, ektenos, which means earnestly, fervently, intensely, without stopping or relaxing an effort. It's from a verb that means to stretch out the hand to exude energy, to exude effort. Ectinos actually came from an athletic term used to describe a sprinter running a race, striving with all of your energy. Do you guys remember Usain Bolt? You remember Usain Bolt, right? Like one of the great, probably the greatest track athletes of all time. There's that picture. Uh, This was the the type of, of analogy that Luke uses to describe the prayer with which the early church was praying. Like you see the intense focus on his face, You see like every muscle and every joint and every member of his body working in unison to achieve the common goal, every ounce of energy. And what Luke is saying is if we could pray like that guy runs a 100 meter dash, that's what it looks like. That's what what an earnest prayer looks like. Luke uses the word earnest one other time in his writings when he wrote the gospel, the account of Jesus's life. And he talked about Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane earnestly. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, when he is praying so earnestly that blood vessels are bursting in his forehead. That is earnest prayer, and that is God's 
will for us in terms of how we should approach the posture of prayer. But I think the tension that we sit in this morning is, is that our prayers are not always earnest. If you guys are like me, my prayers are not always earnest. And I would even say that sometimes my prayers are apathetic. Earnestness says, I will do whatever it takes. I will exert all the energy. I will sacrifice the time. I will move mountains to make sure that I am in communion with the living God. Apathy, on the other hand, says, meh, maybe another time. Apathy says, I'm not really enthusiastic about this. I'm not really concerned. I'm really not that interested in it. And so maybe I'll, I'll do it another time. For some of you, uh, prayer may just seem pointless. Like I've, I've been there before. Uh, it's like writing an email and getting no response. And so you write an email and you get another response and eventually you're like, right, I'm just gonna stop sending God emails because I prayed for that person to be healed or I prayed for that one person to come to faith and I didn't get a response. So I'm not gonna keep sending emails because that feels a little disrespectful. Uh, for some of you, prayer feels like a lot of work and it is because you have a busy schedule and there's no margin in your life and you've got to wake up earlier than you usually do and sacrifice sleep, and you've got to get up and you've got to talk to God, and it's hard. It's hard. And I think for some of us, uh, and this is probably me, <laughs> prayer is just boring. Like, it is just downright boring, and, and I pray to God uh, with this posture that I want him to be interested about things that I'm really not that interested about. And uh, the reason why I say this is, is I'm not in, uh, intending to uh, rebuke anybody Uh, but simply to just remind you that I think the greatest danger or one of the greatest dangers to our future as a church, uh, to our personal walks with God, is an apathetic posture, especially when it bleeds over into our prayer lives, our our prayer lives being the place where we speak to, the primary communication channel with the creator of the universe. Uh, He intended for us to be in relationship with him. He intended for us to communicate with him And uh, if there was ever a group of people that had an excuse to be apathetic in prayer, it was these guys. Um, And and don't just take my word for it on this. Like, look at what Jesus said in John 15, 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's the promise. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Put another way, if you remain in me through prayer and I in you through my written word, you will bear much fruit. But I think the part that we often gloss over is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I believe that God in his grace for us, in his infinite wisdom for us, he will allow us to experience the consequence of nothingness. And it's not because he's a a mean dad. It's not because he's reluctant. It's because God loves you far too much to allow you to settle for anything short of his best, for what he originally created for you to do. And so if we go back to this scripture, we're going to see a group of people that, like I said, they have every reason in the world to be apathetic because look at what they're going up against. Uh, Verse five, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So now not only are there 16 guards, but he is chained to two guys. Like it's a little excessive. Uh, which also to sidebar, do you guys notice that Peter's always sleeping? Like that guy had no problem sleeping. Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses and Jesus are all together and there's Peter. Oh yeah, I'll get up. Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' most vulnerable moment before he goes to the cross, there's Peter. 
right? He had no problem sleeping. He was highly apostolic, but he was also highly narcoleptic. (laughs) Suddenly, the verse goes on to say, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side, give him a rib kick, and he said, wake up, quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And I just wrote in my notes here, God does the extraordinary, but he expects us to do the ordinary. I will free you from prison, but you put on your clothes, young man. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision because he's half asleep. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city and it opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. So on one side, what we see is we see Herod, the entire anarchy of Herod. We see chains and soldiers and maximum security prisons and swords and the recent experience of Peter's best friend being beheaded. And then on the other side, we have this scene of this group of humble believers gathered in prayer. No power, as it would seem, just locking arms and bearing their heart before God, earnestly praying without ceasing. Peter was in chains, but the church was free to pray. When every other gate is shut and locked, the gate to heaven is wide open. And we take advantage of that gate Through prayer. And can I tell you something? The prayer meeting worked. The prayer meeting worked. And this is the power of an earnest prayer. Uh, And that leads me just to my first point, which is earnest prayers unlock the power of God. Earnest prayers unlock the power of God. They produce results. Like Peter was rescued from prison, to which some of you might say, if you're like me, "Ah, actually, no, Tim, the angel rescued Peter from prison. Yeah, but, fair, uh, but prayer fetched the angel, right? Prayer is what fetched the angel. Prayer unlocks the power of God. And it's not because when we pray to God earnestly, like we're, we're uh, trying to persuade this reluctant God, like a, a nagging teenager who's trying to get his way. That's not what prayer is about. Um, earnest prayer is when our heart is in sync with God's heart. Earnest prayer is when God really wants something, And we really want that same thing. Uh, Earnest prayer is this posture of our hearts where we are caring before God. And I really do believe that when we approach him, we will see God do great things. Do you want to see God moving in your life? Do you want to see this verse applied to your situation? You can do it. You can do it. Uh, Put that verse back up. Put verse five up. So Peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Just apply that to your situation. Joe lost his job, but the church was earnestly praying for him. Rachel has cancer, but the church was earnestly praying for her. Steve is going through a terrible divorce, but the church was earnestly praying for him. Whatever problem you walk in these doors with today, just make sure that the other half is, but the church was earnestly praying and I think it's unfortunate because I really relate to, to Peter and in, in, in the early church in this situation that sometimes it takes prisons to produce earnest prayers. And that's why our value here at Restoration is to pray first. 
right? We believe that prayer is not our last resort, it's our first resort. Uh, many of you have, have probably heard the old saying, and if you're like me, you've probably said it at some point. Well, at this point, all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray. It's all we got left. Uh, if some of you remember back to uh, the, I think it was early 2000s, late 90s, there was actually a period of time where uh, you could pray in schools. You could pray in public schools, and then that was legislated away, and there was this famous story of a school, uh, and it was reported on where when you walked into the school through the hallways and you walked into the principal's office, there was a sign on the door. And uh, this is what the sign read. In case of nuclear attack, earthquake, or fire, the ban on prayer will be temporarily lifted. (laughs) And we laugh at how ridiculous that sounds, but too often we live that way. And I believe that when we do, we really risk missing out on the power of God in our lives, but that is not the only thing that we miss out on. Look what the verse says next, verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Experiencing a miracle in your life, experiencing the power of God is wonderful, the miraculous rescue, make no mistake about it. But I do believe that there is even a greater experience for for Peter and the earnestly praying simple church. And it's knowing without a doubt that the creator of the universe is with you and working among you. It is great to see and witness the power of God. It is greater to know God intimately. And that leads me to my second point, which is earnest prayers will grow your faith. Earnest prayers will grow your faith. And trust me, you want your faith to grow. And just take Peter as an example. So Peter is chained to two guys surrounded by 16 guards the night before he's about to be executed with the recent experience of his good friend being beheaded, and he's sleeping. He's asleep. Can you imagine that scene for a moment? How could you be sleeping under such intense pressure and circumstances? Uh, It was J. Oswald Sanders who said uh, this great line. He said, peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. It is not the absence of trouble. It is the presence of God. And it's no surprise to me that, that our guy Peter would later write in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he said, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that one day, you will be full of joy when his glory is revealed. I wonder if what inspired that language that we now think about thousands of years later came from this moment in Peter's life. He was so confident in God's plan, he was so confident in his purpose that one day God's glory would be revealed. And I say all this to tell you that I hope that you are so at peace with your soul that you are so at peace with your position before God that you could be sleeping the night before you're about to be executed. And if you're not, you can be. You can put your faith in Jesus and you can have the assurance that you belong to him. You can have the assurance that heaven is your end destination because Peter walked with that assurance and it completely changed his life. Now I know what some of you may be thinking uh, because I thought this as I'm going through this message. Well, I would feel the same way if an angel broke me out of prison. 
right? If I had this miraculous event come down and I'm in prison and the the angel comes and visits me and kicks me in the ribs, like, yeah, I'd have a lot of faith too, but it it doesn't feel like that's what my life is like. And uh, I want you just to notice what Peter did not do in this passage. You know what Peter didn't do is he didn't dismiss this as a dream or chalk it up as coincidence or associate his grogginess or sluggishness with some type of weird vision. No, he immediately acknowledges God. He says, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel. And it just makes me wonder that if we found ourselves in the same situation, would we really acknowledge God? Would we maybe think to ourselves, ah, it was a weird experience. I had this weird vision. Maybe if God answered that prayer that you're praying, ah, it was a a coincidence, you know, the stars aligned. Uh, There's this terrible quote that that I tend to see on like coffee mugs and pillows at like Target and Crate and Barrel. And it's actually from Albert Einstein, which I'm not here to bag on Einstein because he was a very smart man. Uh, But he said, coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. And let me tell you, friends, God does not want to remain anonymous. God's will is that every heart and every soul and every man and every woman would come to full knowledge of the truth and be saved. God does not operate like Bruce Wayne moving behind the scenes, right? Being the, the God that... Jerusalem deserves, but not the one they need. That's not how God operates. His will is is that you would know him intimately and that all people would know him. Let's go to the end of the story. When this had dawned on him, Peter, uh, so when he had realized that this was all the work of God, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed, so overjoyed that she ran back without opening the door and she exclaimed, Peter is at the door. What do you know? I love this next part. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he says this, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. Man, I would just love to see this scene play out. I imagine Peter sprinting through the streets of Jerusalem. He comes to the house of John Mark. He's banging on the door, pound, pound, pound. And she hears it's his voice, and she goes, oh, it's Peter, it's Peter. She runs back. She goes, guys, Peter's outside. He's there. Pound, pound, pound. He's knocking on the door. And all the simple church, all the mature believers are on the inside and they're having this theological debate about angels. And the first thing that they say to her is they say, you are out of your mind. Now get back in here so we can start praying for Peter to get released. Stop wasting time. And when I read that, hopefully y'all are like me. It kind of gives me some comfort, right? Isn't it comforting that those godly people that we read about in the simple church, that they really actually didn't have a lot of faith? Oh, God's calling somebody. Nine thirty. Hey, let's get. We can clap for that. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers refuse. So ask the Lord of the harvest. Jesus, we pray for harvest workers. Amen. Amen. I love that. That's awesome. Um, I, but this this scene is really comforting for me because I think sometimes we we think that these people in the Bible, like they just were such profound people of faith, and they were. But the point here is is that it didn't take much faith right? A lot of these people in this simple church, they weren't so different from you and I, but the point is they asked. They asked. They gathered together. And I just wonder 
How many miracles, how many powerful works of God do we miss out on our lives, in our lives, simply for the fact that we forget to ask? Or we just don't tell anyone. We don't tell anyone that we're going through something and we desperately need prayer. It is so much better to have a little bit of faith in the one true God than to have a lot of faith in yourself. So this begs the question, how do I pray earnestly? And I don't want to overcomplicate this for you guys. I just put together a couple of short applications. If you're here wondering, how do I actually do this? How do I put it into practice? And uh, it's two C's, community and consistency. Uh, so the first one, community, you can put that slide up. Um, notice that the, first, the verse says uh, in chapter five, in fact, go to that next slide. Verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. Do you notice that the verse doesn't say, but all of the people went to their rooms and prayed quietly by themselves? Do you notice that it doesn't say that they all bought a book on prayer and read it together and had a little book club? No. It says that they locked arms, that they prayed earnestly as a church. And so I just want to remind all of you that the way that we grow in prayer, the way that I have grown in prayer is actually not by praying by myself. It's by praying with powerful men and women of God. Some of you are in this room right now, Jay Tendra and Alan and Jason and Molly Sodershum. That's how I've grown in prayer, by earnestly praying with the church. And so my I will statement is simple. Uh, it gets back to simple church. Uh, and this is why another reason, yet another reason why we keep pushing um, for everybody to be involved in a simple church. And uh, it's because your prayer life depends on it. And so the I will statement is I will take part in a simple church and I will begin praying in community. And if you're already in one, keep doing it. And if you're not in one, come talk to us. We'll help you find one. Or better yet, we'll help you start one, right? And so we all can collectively pray in community. The second is consistency. If you find yourself in a place where uh, prayer is not a part of your daily rhythm, I would encourage you to do so. Um, there's, a, there's a principle in a lot of self-help books, uh, and I call it the don't feel your way into action, but act your way into feeling principle. And if you know anything about any good, best-selling self-help book, all, those, all that wisdom usually finds its root in something that Jesus said, right? And then people make a lot of money off of it. Uh, uh, Jesus said in John seven seventeen, he said, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What he's saying is, is that don't feel your way into acting because if you do that, the feelings may never come. You may never actually feel like doing it, but act your way into feeling. And so the I will statement uh, for consistency is I will set up a recurring prayer time each day. For me, it happens in the mornings from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. And then I've got the Matthew 9:37, just like our, our friend here in the front row. And, and when that alarm goes off for one minute a day, I just pray and I talk to God. So as we close, um, I just want to end with a final question to all of you. And uh, if you're like me, this may have crossed your mind. Um, but when I was going through this passage, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh, some of you know what earnest prayer feels like. Some of you have prayed for hours, for weeks, for months, and for years for someone to be healed, for someone to come to faith, whatever it may be for you. And that prayer has not been answered. And, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but that same thing happens in this story. Verse two, it says, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death. And my question is this, why did God rescue Peter, but he didn't rescue James? Could anybody here stand up and say that, well, it's because God loved Peter more than he loved James? No. 
Can anybody stand up and say, well, it's because God was faithful to Peter, but he was unfaithful to James? No. Could anyone stand up and say the prayer prayed more earnestly for Peter, but they didn't pray as earnestly for James? I don't think so. I think the, pray, the, the church prayed just as earnestly for James. And uh, this question is near and dear to me. Uh, you can actually put that picture up. Uh, this is my brother, Chris. Uh, he's my older brother. Chris is 31 years old. And Chris suffers from a, uh, a brain disorder where a part of his brain never developed uh, called the corpus callosum. And uh, the best thing that I can compare it to is autism or, or Asperger's syndrome. And uh, Chris has the IQ of about a fifth grader. Uh, and I love Chris so much. Uh, I've grown up with him my entire life. He lives here in Denver. And, and I say that he suffers from this because that is what his life has been marked by, is suffering. Uh, Chris is in this place where he is smart enough to see all the people around him, to see people getting married and having families and having kids and, and getting jobs and living independent lives. But he's disabled enough to the point where he sees how he can't achieve that himself. And it, it's just brutal uh, to watch. And for my entire life, as long as I can remember, my mom and I prayed for my brother to be healed and to come to know Jesus. And it was hard because he couldn't ever grasp the gospel fully. And so I just asked God, please heal him, please heal him. And it wasn't until about a month ago that I felt like that prayer had never been answered. Our staff went to a training retreat with a guy named Curtis Sargent. You might have heard Ron talk about that last week, uh, or Jason talk about that last week. And I, I heard stories uh, from this guy, Curtis, who was doing mission work all around the world and who was so in tune with what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. And he shared stories of the blind seeing and lame people walking and even people being raised from the dead. And there was no lie in this man's lie, eyes. And I was so inspired and so encouraged and I, it just built up so much faith in my heart that I felt challenged to earnestly pray for my brother. And I mean earnestly, like without ceasing. And so for weeks and weeks and weeks, I prayed every day and every night, and I started fasting. And so one day, I called upon the elders of the church, and myself and Jay Tendra and Alan Reed, we gathered here at this building, and we brought Chris. And I was thinking about Luke 5, when, when the friends of the paralyzed man bring him to Jesus, and Jesus prays over him. I said, I'm going to bring Chris to Jesus. And so we sat there and we prayed for him for 30 minutes, for 45 minutes, for an hour, for an hour and a half. And there was this moment where Alan just brilliantly uh, spoke the gospel to my brother in a way that only he could understand it using pictures and metaphors. And for the first time in my brother's life, I heard him acknowledge sin and recognize his need for Jesus. I saw no signs of physical healing and I'm in the, the car with Chris driving home and I get home and I drop him off and I just remember leaving that place and I felt encouraged that he had heard the gospel but I felt discouraged that he wasn't healed. Like I was so confident that he would be healed that I actually started thinking about what is our life going to look like when my brother has a restored mind. Like that is how much I believed in this and if you know anything about the way God works is sometimes he'll let you sit with something for a while. That's how his Holy Spirit works is he is a very patient God and I sat with that for weeks at a time until God hit me over the hammer when Ron asked our staff to analyze this verse. You can put it up there, James 5, 16. And it says this, it says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, okay, we did that. Go to the next verse. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And what that verse said and what God spoke to me is it does not say that the prayer of faith will heal the person, but it says that the prayer of faith will save him. And I believe that that day, although my brother was not physically healed, and I don't know what God has in store for him, whether he's gonna heal him on this side of the grave or the next, but what I do know is, is that God, God solved a bigger problem in his life. He solved the eternal problem. He rescued him uh, so that Chris might experience eternity in the presence of Jesus. And I think therein lies the answer to why God rescued uh, Peter, but he didn't rescue James. And the answer is this. It's the mystery of God. It's Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I believe that Peter was rescued because it simply was not his time to go. Uh, God wasn't done with him. And I believe that James died with the glorious courage of a martyr because God gave him the strength to see it through to the very end. And so whatever circumstances you walk in here today with, you might be thinking like, this is a James and, and, and this is a Peter. And, and for you, I don't know. I don't know what God has, but what I do know is, is that we can bring it to the Lord earnestly as a church, not as individuals, but as a church. And we can say, no matter what, God, we will glorify you. No matter what, we will serve you. And if you want us to serve you like a James and faithfully serve you through our suffering until our very last breath, then we will do it or if you want us to serve you like a Peter and trust that you are gonna perform a miraculous work, then we will do it. But no matter what, God, you get the glory. You get the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just acknowledge that your spirit is here. And uh, God, we thank you for your miraculous works. You have the power to move mountains. You have the power to do things in our lives and in our hearts that are beyond comprehension, God. And we believe that you have the power to do that. I pray for our church, God, that a spirit of earnest prayer would come over all of us, Father, that we would gather in groups in simple churches and we would call on the name of Jesus, God, and that we would be witnesses to your miraculous works. I pray that it would grow our faith, Jesus, that every day we would grow in intimacy with you, regardless of our circumstances. And God, for those who are in this room right now who are suffering, who walk in here, God, with a burden, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would experience your healing. I pray that they would experience your miraculous works. I pray that our church would rise up to the call and that we would pray for each other earnestly, fervently, and with caring hearts. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.